and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up rich and surprising stories about food and how it makes us who we are from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Every year since 1981, hundreds of scholars, writers, chefs, and enthusiastic amateurs from all around the world have gathered at the Oxford Food Symposium to share their ideas in the form of published papers and lectures. This podcast now brings some of those stories to you. And this is the very first episode of season one, so thank you so much for being here with us. And just before we start, I have a quick note, and this is for those of you who have been following the symposium and this podcast project for a while. You might have actually heard a few episodes that we released in 2017 before we decided to launch a whole season of episodes, so that's what's happening here. If you recognize some of these stories like this one, it's just because you're so awesome and you've been with us since the beginning of this journey. So thank you and please bear with us because we've also got some fantastic new stories for you coming up this season. Stay tuned. And we are hard at work on season two, which comes out this fall and which is going to be six all new stories. So make sure to hit that subscribe button and you will not miss a single bite. Now on to today's story. Today our story is less about one dish and more about the people who make it. And our storyteller today... Do you want it? I'm Laura Shapiro, or... Is writer, Laura Shapiro. I'm a culinary historian. I have mostly written about American culinary history. Laura is a longtime contributor to the Oxford Symposium, and she's a food writer and historian. Her work has been everywhere, from Newsweek to The Atlantic and Gourmet Magazine, to name a few. But today's story comes to us from the 2012 Symposium, Wrapped and Stuffed, where it was the symposium's task to tell stories about dumplings, pierogies, empanadas, and haggis... But Laura took the assignment a little differently. While telling her wrapped and stuffed story, she decided to unwrap another story at the same time. And that story takes place in a little cooking contest called the Pillsbury Bake Off. It's the one contest. They don't pull your name out of a hat. You have to have something to make the judges that have to take notice. And that's a challenge for a woman, to my idea. What happened was that Pillsbury, which was a huge flour company, still is, although it's been... uh, absorbed by General Mills, its great competitor. But it was a big flour company at a time when uh, purchases of flour seemed to be uh, going down because fewer people were baking bread every week, fewer people were doing all this home baking that had long characterized American home kitchens. So in uh, 1949, Pillsbury decided to promote its basic product, home flour, uh, and do it with this big, expensive, very splashy cooking contest that would reach across the whole country and uh, invite contributions from everywhere. Every year, from thousands and thousands of entries, 100 finalists are chosen to attend the Pillsbury Bake Off to prepare their recipes. So what they did was they invited home cooks from around the country to submit recipes that used at least half a cup of Pillsbury flour. That was the only requirement. And of course, the recipes poured in, and they had teams of home economists going over the recipes and testing them. They finally selected 100 finalists, brought them to New York to walk into the ballroom at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. To a marching band playing When the Saints Come Marching In. The ballroom had been outfitted with 100 little miniature kitchens, and all these people went to work baking their uh, their recipes. These 100 finalists, who were mostly women, had already, just by sheer fact of being a finalist, received unprecedented amounts of publicity for doing something that they normally did at home, for little to no recognition. Cooking. 
And that's the wonderful thing about this contest. I think every woman feels well repaid before she ever comes. Actually, and then they'd been flown across the country and given all this grand treatment. She receives a new general electric oven range. And finally, they enter into the ballroom, which had been outfitted at enormous cost for them and their recipes. And then on the big day... A winner was chosen. Huge publicity again. The next year they did it again, and, uh, and from then on... Pillsbury Bake Off, the very term Bake Off, became this emblem of American cooking. To those watching from the outside, the Bake Off seemed like the most unlikely of successes. First of all, nobody thought you could even promote a product like flour, which was just so ordinary. Who would buy Pillsbury instead of some other brand? Every flour seemed to be the same, and there seemed to be so many logistical reasons why it couldn't work. But despite these reasons, the Bake Off prevailed. And Laura thinks that this is probably because the Bake Off really wasn't about Pillsbury, or the flour. Not to the cooks, at least. To the housewives, who were traditionally the least appreciated people in the nation, it was all about getting that appreciation. Yes, home cooking has always been uh, the kind of cooking that is supposed to kind of go without notice, except in in the world of the family, where where you're supposed to be rewarded by the happy faces around the table. You're certainly not supposed to be rewarded in cash. And, and that was one of the reasons why the Bake Off was so incredibly successful. These were good home cooks who put out their best cooking, and if they won... They won in money. They won the first uh, the first prize in 1949 was $25,000. The grand prize now is a million dollars and uh, and this is this is elevating home cooking from the emotional economy to the cash economy. This is a big change for women's cooking which has always taken place outside that world. And the, uh, the winners, over the years, when they interview the winners, even the, the finalists, the 100 finalists, even the ones who don't go home with a cash prize, they go home with something. But as the years of the Bake Off went on, the now thousands and thousands of contestants began to generate more than only cash and a new appreciation for home cooking. A new genre of cooking was being developed, contest cooking. In the early years of the Bake Off, people were submitting recipes that were the kinds of things that you would kind of show off to company. It was, you know, your your best apple pie or the chocolate cake that your grandmother used to make. The things that any home cook would be proud of in that day. As time went on, they got more and more what can only be called creative. People started adding a little this and a little that, and uh, and the recipes became more elaborate much fancier and uh, farther away from day-to-day home cooking or even day-to-day company cooking. Recipes like Pizza Wellington began to win, a concoction of pre-made pizza dough, mozzarella cheese, and ground beef. So did recipes with such curious names as Tunnel of Fudge Cake and Chicken Empanada Cones, and a Fiesta Fruit and Shrimp Salad Stack would hardly have been a Tuesday night recipe in most American homes. It seemed at the Bake Off that the more you forgot about regular home cooking, the better. And it was into this emergent flurry of contest cooking that a woman named Edna Holmgren marched in 1967. 
Edna Holmgren was a, uh, a woman who had grown up in Minnesota. Actually, her father worked for General Mills, and she was 55 years old. She was a village clerk in a town called Eden Prairie, Minnesota, not too far from Minneapolis. And, uh, and in 1967, she decided to enter the Pillsbury Bake Off. She just wanted, you know, she wanted to do something that would make money and be a little bit glamorous. Edna, as many housewives had done at the time, had been following the Bake Off for years. And she knew that a winning recipe needed to be unique and creative, enough to stand out from the thousands of other submissions. So she got to work in the kitchen, and she came up with an idea. So her idea was to, uh, was to take a marshmallow, wrap it in dough, and bake it. She was right that this was extremely creative. Nobody had ever wrapped a marshmallow in dough, as far as I can tell. Edna, of course, followed the contest rule that you had to use at least one half cup of Pillsbury flour in your recipe. So she used that cup in her marshmallow wrapping dough and sent this in to be judged. What happens in the bake-off is that you uh, submit your recipe, and if it's chosen, if you're chosen to be one of the finalists, they call you. Pillsbury calls you and tells you that you have been selected to go to the, uh, to the Great Bake Off. You, you are one of the 100 finalists. 1967, she submits this recipe. She does not get the phone call. Something wasn't right. The recipe, although it was quite simple by home cooking standards, was probably a little too complicated for the Bake Off. Edna happened to be entering the Bake Off right in the middle of a sea change for Pillsbury and for the food industry at large. In 1967, convenience products, products like boxed macaroni and cheese, instant mashed potatoes, and cake mix, were all still relatively new items on the shelf. And companies like Pillsbury were trying desperately to sell them to American housewives. But the housewives were not taking the bait. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. Well, for one thing, they didn't need them. This was still a generation of cooks that pretty much knew how to cook. Certainly if you entered a contest, you knew how to cook. They didn't need a cake mix. They know perfectly well how to bake a cake. They didn't have to uh, use instant mashed potatoes. It was no big deal to bring home a few potatoes and mash them. And so in order to convince the housewives that they did in fact need cake mix and instant potatoes, Pillsbury and other big food companies began to advertise these products using a modern pseudo-feminist angle. A girl has to have a few secrets from her husband. Here's one of mine, new Pillsbury instant mashed potatoes. The ads took on this uh, tone of, uh, don't use those old drudgery ways that your grandmother did in the kitchen. Don't spend six hours trying to make dinner anymore. Do it the quick, easy, modern way. So, so that they would dress up the whole idea of using these products and, and make you just feel like this old-fashioned kitchen drudge if you did things the old-fashioned And way. then in 1968, a year after Edna did not get a call back, Pillsbury made a game-changing decision. They decided to enlist the home cooks as key operatives in bringing convenience foods more deeply into the American kitchen. How did they do that? The Bake Off. Nothing says Starting in 1968, Pillsbury decided to award prizes in three categories for the first time. You could use that half cup of Pillsbury flour, or you could use a Pillsbury mix, or you could use 
this product that they were really trying to push, which was refrigerated fresh dough. This was a fresh dough that was sold in a tube, and if you kept it chilled, it would uh, it would not go bad, and you could keep it in the refrigerator. Then you would take the tube out when you were ready to use it and uh, pull it out of the tube and unroll it and do a lot of different things with it. And that same year, they decided in the judging to, to use a new standard, and they announced this also. They said flavor and appearance would, of course, count very importantly, but so would speed. Speed and packaged foods. Those would be the new standards in judging. And uh, once that was established as something that uh, you had to keep in mind if you wanted to win one of these prizes, sure enough, you were going to see more and more packaged foods and quicker recipes pouring into the bake-off, and that's exactly what happened. Back in Eden Prairie... Edna Holmgren was no doubt watching all of this unfold. So she, I am assuming, starts to try to figure out what she did wrong and how she could make it better. A year later, she tried again. And this time, she used the refrigerated fresh dough. Taking the hint, she incorporated speed into her recipe, using these tubes of dough that had actually been assigned their own category for the 1968 Bake Off. She chose the one that was flavored with buttermilk. So she took a buttermilk dough and wrapped it around the marshmallow. The combination of buttermilk and marshmallow was apparently not wonderful. So she, uh, she didn't uh, win again. But Edna would not be thwarted. Perhaps all of her years working as a village clerk had toughened her to the world, or perhaps she had just been born a determined spirit. But the next year in 1969, she tried for a third time. And this time, though she still used the Pillsbury refrigerated dough, instead of buttermilk biscuits, she used a product called refrigerated crescent rolls to wrap around her marshmallow. She takes the marshmallow. Here's what you do for this. You take the marshmallow, you roll it in uh, cinnamon and sugar, you wrap it in the dough, you dip the dough in butter, and you bake the thing. When you bite into it, you get this tremendous hit of uh, sweetness and gooiness and stickiness. What you do not get is a marshmallow. The marshmallow has kind of melted away in the oven. So it's, uh, it's, an, it's an empty wrapping packed with sweetness. This time, Edna knew she had done it. The call came. Edna Holmgren went to the bake-off as one of the 100 finalists, and she walked off with the prize of $25,000. She called her creation Magic Marshmallow Crescent Puffs because the magic was that the marshmallow had disappeared. You would never even know it had been there. This recipe made history. It certainly made Pillsbury history. People made it and made it and made it. They make it to this day. It was inducted into the Pillsbury Hall of Fame of bake-off recipes, and uh, she was famous in the circle of Pillsbury winners. She was famous for the rest of her life. In fact, this was remembered in her obituary when she died at, I think, 90. Despite the celebrity of Edna Holmgren in the bake-off community, the rest of the world has never heard of her name. 
And most people in the serious food community think of the Bake Off as a kind of culinary joke. To us, people at the Oxford Symposium who think about food all the time and and have probably far more sophisticated tastes than many people, these recipes look ridiculous. They just look like these inane combinations of ingredients, things we would never put together, especially because so many of them are from packaged foods, and we can laugh at it. On the other hand, we're seeing now this uh, this movement in cuisine that has it's had different names. We can call it molecular gastronomy. It's sort of chemistry lab cooking. It takes a lot of machines. It's got creativity as its watchword. And it consists of a lot of ridiculous ingredients, some of them packaged, put into ridiculous form, very far from anything that most of us with our wonderfully sophisticated palates would even dream of eating. And these are lauded and applauded and paid for as the fanciest, most admirable, most brilliant cooking around. Could something soulful, beautiful, and delicious be produced under laboratory conditions? So why such a huge difference in how these types of cooking are seen by the public? Well, the Pillsbury cooks are women and the molecular gastronomy cooks are men, and uh, I am positive that the food can be gendered along with the along with the cooks themselves, and that that has a lot to do with their standing in in the world of food. It's not to say that the Bake Off recipes and these elite modern restaurant dishes are anything alike. Molecular gastronomy is not using refrigerated tubes of dough. But it does use a lot of prepackaged chemical substances. Some natural hydrocolloid gums, such as alginate extract. Whether we like to admit it or not, Laura says, a cook's gender plays a role in how seriously their cooking is taken. Until now, learning these techniques has been a haphazard process. So at the Pillsbury Bake Off, if they're doing creativity, they're going to wrap refrigerated dough around a canned crab and mayonnaise and Worcestershire sauce, and they're going to call it sushi. Pretty silly, right? In molecular gastronomy, they're going to wrap potato starch and soy lecithin around a mixture of pine nuts and pine cone oil, and they're going to call it ravioli. I think that's pretty silly. But one of it, one of it uh, from a gastronomic point of view, one of it is relocated to the joke of women's home cooking, and the other is elevated to our very highest level of uh, expensive gastronomic bliss. The Pillsbury food might be objectively bad, but the principle behind it is just the same as molecular gastronomy. Both cooks are being as creative and inventive as they possibly can with the resources they have available to them. And the reality is that, even today, there are a few women who have access to the resources of a chemistry lab kitchen. It, there, were, there are some realms of, that are male preserves that just were going to be impossible pervious to a woman getting in the door, in part because in the world of cooking, because we associate cooking with women, which means that the men who go into it have to so rigidly hold themselves apart from femininity and femaleness and anything woman-like that you got to keep women very far away from what you're doing. And, uh, and they, of course, managed to do that for generations and generations. Of course, a lot of that is changing now. 
a lot more women are working in high-end professional kitchens, and a lot more men are doing more real home cooking. Even men's cooking at home, until very recently, would have been confined to show-off cooking. You know, here's dad's famous barbecue, or, you know, my husband's wonderful salad that he makes by rubbing the garlic around the bowl, and he adds this and he does that. Dad's famous barbecue isn't what keeps the family fed from year to year, but it does get the most applause. So male cooking is always rewarded in one way or another, Women's cooking is most often ignored, except in a very private sphere. Perhaps a corollary to this is that the Bake Off has actually always had male competitors. A small number, but they were there, even though for decades they never took home the prize. But as soon as Pillsbury increased the grand prize to $1 million in 1996, a huge percent more men suddenly jumped aboard. And 1996 was the first year that a man won the Bake Off. This was such a downer, but yes, it happened. And I suspect since then, you're seeing more and more men <laughs> flock in the door. With my recipe, Caribbean panna cotta pie. My recipe is Asian spiced cashew chicken piadinis. My recipe is... But the thing is, that regardless of whether they get rewarded for their work or not, the still mostly female cohort of home cooks has always been the most important demographic, shaping how and what we eat. Pillsbury knew this full well when they first created the Bake Off and then again in the 1960s when they used it as a tool to introduce convenience products to households. But how much are contest cooking styles influencing how we cook and eat today? I, You know, if you read, especially as the years go on, if you read about these prize-winning recipes from the Bake Off, you just want to crawl under the sofa and hide. If, I mean, if this is what American cooking has come to, we are doomed. But of course it isn't. It's what show-off expensive prize-winning cooking has come to. And as I say, it has nothing to do with what any of us is ever going to eat at home. So it's, it doesn't do any damage, really, and it makes money for somebody, so it's okay. It is true that probably no one is making Bake Off-style sushi to feed their kids. Or molecular ravioli, either, for that matter. But these styles of highly performative cooking still have changed how we think about our own home cooking. And we still do have people cooking at home. It's just... Uh, the busier people get outside the home, the, the more they relegate cooking to something they don't have time to do. This is in part because we get to thinking that dinner at home has to be this incredibly fancy thing. These, these meal kits that are coming along, it's not like macaroni and cheese. It's, you know, some Thai dish that has 16 different ingredients because that's what dinner is supposed to be. Well... I think it doesn't have to be that. I think it can be the simplest thing in the world. But if you make it yourself and you make it from a few decent ingredients, you're, you're, eating, you're eating just fine. These so-called meal kits are just that. Meals that are delivered to you, disassembled in pre-measured proportions with step-by-step -step instructions. Blue Apron helps to deliver fresh ingredients that customers can cook in their own kitchen. They're carefully formulated by the industry to emulate global trends in fine dining. And their message to the home cook is... If you can't make something complex and showy that would look good on Instagram, don't bother making it at all. And just like in the 1960s with the Bake Off, Laura is convinced that the food industry is once again contriving to tell us that we need their products to save home cooking. We have good facts or statistics on home cooking these days because the people doing that research and promoting the surveys are the food industry, and they have a big interest in convincing people that they shouldn't be cooking because nobody's cooking and because all the cooking that's going on in America now comes from boxes and jars. And the food industry has been telling us that 
since about 19, actually before the 40s. They started saying that in the 30s. And uh, I think they, I know they were wrong then. And I think when they say it now, they are still wrong. Cooking has changed. No matter who's cooking at home, it is undoubtedly a lot simpler and quicker on a day-to-day basis than it uh, was a generation ago. The growing myth is that home cooking is dead, or at least it's dying. That real cooking only happens in restaurants or when you pull out all the stops for a photogenic feast. But what about the cooking that still does happen, without pomp and circumstance, in most kitchens around the country? It's not the sort of Norman Rockwell meal that we associate with the family dinner. But people are cooking. People still want to sit down and eat with their families, even if it's going to be 20 minutes and the everybody's got a phone by the plate and the food is a mix of uh, takeout and something you made um, from scratch. So I don't think it's gone. And I wish, I just wish I could call on some uh, survey or statistic to prove this point. I can't. So perhaps it's up to us, those of us who have the luxury of time to spend thinking about food as well as eating it, to try and be more realistic in how we talk about home cooking. Because food changes. What and how we eat changes. So as the divide grows between Instagrammable meal kit cooking and regular average home cooking, the more pressure and judgment is put on home cooks. And even though now more than ever there are people of all genders doing all kinds of cooking, the majority of people putting daily meals on the table are still women. And they're still not getting paid. Absolutely. Home cooking has been declared dead more often than the women's movement, and that is a lot. And neither of them has ever died. Thanks to Laura Shapiro. You can find her paper from the 2012 Symposium on Google eBooks. Links provided on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigurther, with editorial help provided by the brilliant Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. Thanks in this episode goes to Ben Elman in New York City, who did our tape sync. This show is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, with a special thanks to Ursula Heinzelman and Elizabeth Luard. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, William Kaoloa, Nancy Sinatra, and the Michael Conrad Marines Band. For a complete list of sourced audio, please visit our website. And to learn more about the Oxford Symposium again, that website address is oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Oxford Food Simp and Instagram at Oxfood Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and give us a review and tell your friends. We're a new podcast and it really helps. So thanks so much and we will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.